0: Welcome to the Visions of a Better World podcast. We are part of Global Visions, an association founded in Helsinki, Finland. Our goal is to bring people and organizations together, as well as develop ideas and ways of thinking to make the world a better place. In this podcast series, our association is represented by me, project planner Petri Lahtinen. And Max Thalberry, the founder and chairperson of the association. We are also inviting guests to the podcast to discuss themes that are important in making the world a better place. Welcome everyone. On this episode, we had the privilege of having Alex Seger as our guest, the professor of philosophy at Portland State University and author of such books as toward a cosmopolitan ethics of migration and against borders. Normally, we try to keep these episodes under the 60-minute mark, but this time around we had such an an exciting and vivid discussion with Serge that we just couldn't contain ourselves. Thus, for your convenience, dear listener, we decided to split this session into two parts. Out of which this is the first one. Stay tuned for the second part of this session, which will be released shortly after this first one. Okay, now on with the show. We hope you enjoy. Well, hello everyone once again, and welcome to another episode of the Visions of a Better World podcast. Uh, today we are very excited because we have a very special guest. But as always, uh, I'm Petri Lahtinen, the project planner of Global Visions Association, and I'm once again joined by the founder and. Chairman of our association, Max Thalberg. Welcome, Max.
1: Thank you. Hi, everyone.
0: And our guest today is Alex Sager, all the way from the United States. And uh, rather than me trying to do justice introducing him, I'll let the man speak for himself. So welcome, Alex and, and Alex Sager. And please uh, introduce yourself to the, our listeners
2: Great. Thank, thank you, Petri, and th- thank you, Max, for, for inviting me to uh, to join you for this conversation. I'm, I'm Alex Sager. I'm a philosophy professor at uh, Portland State University in, in Oregon, in the, in the U.S., and my, my main area of research is the, the philosophy of migration and mobility. And I have, I have a recent book called uh, Against uh, Borders that I, I think will be informing this conversation, and, uh, yeah, I look forward to our chat.
1: Okay, great. Let's then begin and let's start by going through the basic idea of open borders. So what does the idea of open borders mean? What would it mean on a global societal level and for the individual? And how would it change the current world?
2: Well, these, these, these are some big questions, uh, Max, and I, I hope we can look back to, to some of them in, in our conversation. Maybe I'll start by you know, what I mean by open borders uh, in in my book. And so, in my book, I'm focusing on, on political borders, and there, there are many types of borders. Or sometimes people distinguish between borders and boundaries. But um, so I, I'm talking about political borders, and I, I give the example in the, in the book uh, that you know I, I live on the border of another state, you know, within within the United States. So I, I live in Oregon. And about, about a 20 minute drive from, from my, my apartment is uh, the state of Washington. And we have a lot of people who go back and forth between uh, Portland and Vancouver, Washington, pretty much, pretty much every day, but it's, it's, it's very common. You, you need to drive across a bridge, there's the Columbia River that, that separates us. And there, there are no border guards. You know, there's, there's, there's no kind of restrictions about crossing from one side to the other. The different political jurisdictions. And so you, you can visit freely, but also if I decided one day that I want to rent an apartment in Vancouver or perhaps you know, purchase property there, I can do that freely. I can move to, to Washington and after a fairly short uh, amount of time, then I would become a full uh, political member of the state of Washington and you know the city of Vancouver. And so for open borders, I'm, what I'm talking about is making, for example, the border between Canada and the US, similar, between the, similar to the border between Oregon and Washington, or the border between Mexico and uh, the, the United States. And maybe we can, I, I think in the conversation, we can talk about, uh, I think some concerns that people have with uh, the proposal for open borders and some of the impacts. So I, think, I think that will come out as, as we, we continue our discussion.
0: Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned the, uh, uh, specifically the idea of a political border. But uh, if I follow on your example of, of uh, the border of United States and Canada, for example, and more especially the border of uh, United States and Mexico, that is uh, there is only not a political border, but there's also this border or boundary uh, between, let's say, uh, culture, uh, maybe less so between United States and and Canada, since you both share the same language. But there's also what I've understand that There's uh, certain cultural differences that come up, for example, in 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 comedy where there's those are exaggerated. But the uh, this is more evident when you when we regard the difference between uh, United States and Mexico, uh, since the the um, major language changes from from English to to Spanish, and also there are more cultural differences. Is is this uh, uh, when you you are have been researching uh, borders? Is 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 there, is there have you researched or asked the question the border question of, of what the actual idea philosophically? Of a border means when we expand it from from the uh, uh, geographical or political border to the uh, those of uh, cultural, language, politics, and even time.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's this. This is a complex question, and there, there's a whole discipline, uh, critical border studies. Uh, largely, geographers are, are doing research in this area, but but also others. And kind of a large literature around, you know, what what is a border? Mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned you know cultural borders and linguistic borders, religious borders. There's all kinds of uh, you know sub-state organizations that have different types of borders. Mm-hmm. Employers' of borders, sometimes neighborhoods are are, are are gated. And I guess I, I kind of want to say uh, two things here. Um, I actually think the philosophy of borders is much more complex than the question of you know free mobility between you know countries or or states, and I think there's actually a lot of work to be done. I mean, some of the work has been done about the ethics of borders more generally, because I mean borders borders have have functions, right? You know, they help us classify, they help us sort out the world, they help us administrate. You know, diff- different different um, uh, j- jurisdictions, and, and and we need borders. Uh, but, you know, I guess my sort of main concern is when borders become exclusionary. I'm not saying there's, there's never cases where borders can be exclusionary. I think most of us would agree that we should have some say, at least, you know, in our intimate relationships, you know, where the borders are. Though, you know, anybody who's had, uh, you know, a sibling, you know, marry somebody else, I mean, you you have... <laughs> even have limited control over your family Um, and so i I think there needs to be a lot of kind of scrutiny about um you know thinking about the borders we have and asking if if they're the ones we want i i also want to say something uh to your your point about culture because i i actually think i kind of disagree okay with with the similar cultures between uh you know the u.s and mexico Mm -hmm. um as, as you probably know uh, a large part of the u.s territory was Mexican territory mm, yeah. um, you know far, fairly recently in you know the the, the mexican-american uh, war and uh, the influence of um, Spanish and Hispanic cultures in, in the u.s is, is enormous mm. you know not only in you know the Tens of millions of people who mm-hmm. speak Spanish, either as a first language or uh, you know, are bilingual or, or trilingual. But you know, I think anybody who's uh, spent time in you know the South of the United States, mm-hmm. you know, really does, you know, you, you, you see that this is actually part of the U.S. culture, and this mm-hmm. is something I think that's really kind of important uh, because you know, countries, you know, our, our conception of countries is you know, it's, it's due to nation-building projects. You know, it's due to people, you know, elites, yeah. uh, kind of imposing their vision of, you know, what the culture is. And, you know, my, my view is that, uh, you know, Mexican culture and, uh, you know, also Central American culture and South American culture are very much part of, of, of the community. And, I mean, I'm talking about tens of millions of people. Yeah. And so, you know, say that, uh, you know, Angle culture is U.S. culture. I, I actually think that's that's a mistake. Um,
0: so, yeah, I, I may, maybe I, I I could clarify that uh, that in my view, I could say that the, the border, the actual political border between United States and Mexico, is 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 not the same border that the culture has. But at the same time, I can. I could guess that, that this sort of somewhat structural imaginary cultural border is something that is used in political rhetoric to justify also the, the existence of a uh, political border, especially uh, a, a topic that was uh, very much on the surface, especially during the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, that the the sort of that the, the Mexicans as an ethnic uh, nation or ethnic group they are not us they are not Americans. Uh, so that was maybe the point I was trying to make more more so than and and of of course then 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 the question of, of cultural borders is is more uh, evident when you are thinking about the refugee question when when there are people coming. From far away to another country, of course. the 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 more close the culture, or cultures, or different countries are to each other, the more similarities they share. But yeah, that that was just you one know, specification I wanted to make.
2: You know, not something to say. I, I think maybe sometimes proximity means mm-hmm. more. You know, I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. Just you know, cultural similarities because I, you know we need to talk about what that is. But mm-hmm. you know, we shouldn't forget the whole you know colonial and imperialist uh, you know history you know which has had a major effect on cultures you know both both ways. And mm-hmm. that I, I think there are often commonalities and you know, legacies we need to think about uh, that are geographically uh, mm-hmm. you know quite quite distant.
1: Yeah. Maybe we could next delve deeper into into why why you support open borders when it comes to the politics of the world or, or political borders. What, what are the reasons for supporting it, and what are, what, what would, would be the good effects of open borders?
2: Yeah. Well, th- th- thank you, Max. Um, you know, I kind of just thinking about just our conversation we've had right now, and uh, you know, Petri brought up uh, you know Donald Trump, and you know Donald Trump is uh, you know is I, I guess a political entrepreneur <laughs> yeah. and you know he he's somebody who you know i don't even know to you know I, i'm pretty sure uh, you know his own kind of personal views are objectionable in a lot of ways but i really think he focused on the immigration issue because he found that it was effective you know for you know a segment of the um the republican party that is is, is drawn to nativist and i think you know xenophobic um causes, but I also think it was very much promoted, you know, through, through Trump's rhetoric and also the group of people that he had around him, uh, you know, many that had been doing kind of anti-immigrant uh, advocacy for, for decades. Um, but, you know, why am I kind of you know, bringing this back up? Well, I think it has to do with the, the ways in which kind of our, our, our conception of political borders separates us. And, uh, you know, it, it, creates, it creates this sort of us versus them, you know, d- mm-hmm. d- dynamic. Um, and just, just kind of, you know, the, the existence of borders provides this opportunity mm-hmm. that, you know, makes it e- easy for, for, for bad actors to stigmatize, you know, large groups of very diverse people. Uh, I've, I've lived in Mexico for, for a number of years, uh, you know, in the past. And, and Mexico is, is an incredibly diverse Uh, country, um, you know, regionally, but also, you know, the large indigenous populations. And, you know, so, you know, I'm always kind of concerned about any, you know, claim that, you know, there's... Finnish identity or U.S. identity or, Cana- I mean, you know, I'm Canadian, I grew up in Canada, Canadian identity or Mexican identity you know, because of the complexity. So one reason, you know, I, I really think uh, we should support open borders is I think it breaks down with us versus them and prevents us from thinking of ways in which we can build solidarity, uh, you know, between people. But there, there, there's a number of other reasons. I, I, I argue in my book uh, that the arguments for open borders, it's almost like the uh, there, there's too many arguments, or, or at least a, a number of different arguments, all of which I consider to be fairly strong. Uh, I'll just say very, very br- briefly uh, what I think are the major ones. I think the one that I find uh, most interesting is the the, the the political border. So making this distinction between you know citizens and non-citizens, or citizen and, and, and immigrant. Um, I actually think uh, it's a term from uh, sociologists, um, people like uh, um, D- Douglas Massey and I think Charles Tilley. They, they call this categorical inequalities. And it's the way that we have these categories that function to impose inequalities. And I think that you know, the category of immigrant uh, actually functions that way. So you know, by definition, immigrants uh, don't have usually the same bundle of rights. And this varies you know, from place to place, but in most places, there, there are some exceptions. They don't have political rights. They don't have the right to you know, vote or, or run for office, but also it, it functions economically. And so uh, you know, people brought in, for example, on you know, temporary work visas. You know, this structurally functions to, to exploit them. And uh, you know, it, it puts them in a, in a position where they're not able to compete you know, equally for, you know, for, 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 wages. And so I, I find, you know, there's, these categorical inequalities, inequalities, they're often, um, kind of buttressed by, I'll just be kind of frank, by, by racism. And so, you know, we have this kind of legal category, but it often comes with a social and a cultural, you know, set, set of baggage and often a very kind of problematic, uh, uh, baggage. And you can look at the history of, 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 of immigration and how immigrants have been, you know, portrayed and uh, I think often marginalized and, and discriminated against. And so, you know, the, this idea of a categorical inequality, I, I find it very problematic because I, I, I believe in, you know, equality, you know, between people. And I think we should be very careful, you know, when we mark people off and give them, you know, fewer opportunities or um, for, for less power. So categorical inequalities is one, I'll say a couple other, um, you know, reasons that I support open borders, I, I, in the philosophy literature, there's a lot of emphasis simply on freedom. And it's perhaps the the, the the most basic liberal principle that, you know, if you interfere with somebody's freedom, you have to be able to justify it. So when you use coercion on somebody, you have to have a good reason uh, to, to do so. And... This connects to, you know, immigration enforcement. Um, you know, our immigration systems have been securitized. So, you know, there's really billions of dollars uh, spent on militarizing borders. You certainly see this in, in Europe, and you know, all of the, uh, you know, ways in which uh, you know the Mediterranean is patrolled, and you know, the ways in which European states and the European Union have entered into very problematic relations with states like Libya and Turkey. Um, and so we, we interfere with people's freedom, you know, with their immigration controls, but we also use a lot of violence, you know, to do so. And thousands of people die every year. And, you know, kind of the narrative you always sort of hear is, well, you, you know, these smugglers are bad actors and you know, people shouldn't come and those sorts of things. But they, they die because of the political system that we have in place. And there, there are alternatives. And you know, I, I just look at you know, not only the violence. You know, death is—I don't even know—it's the worst. But we have you know, horrific uh, um, uh, growth in immigrant detention. And so, you know, for example, uh, this this occurs both offshore. So you know, Australia has kind of pioneered you know, offshore in detention to uh, you know nearby uh, islands, uh, Libya you know, detains people. And also, you know, within the US, within Canada, within the European Union, we actually detain a lot of people who are uh, exercising their legal right to claim asylum. And I, you know, it's, and we should understand this as violence. So two, two kind of claims, about why to support open borders. I mentioned categorical inequalities, I mentioned freedom and also the violence in which people's freedom is curtailed. And then um, there, there are economic reasons. Know, for this, I, I think it's pretty much a consensus among economists that if we have significantly more open borders, it will have an enormous uh, benefit not only to people who, who move, but also to uh, you know global global GDP. And you know there's there's an added kind of complication about distributive justice, about how you know resources are distributed. But the fact that somebody can move and do nothing other than move and make five times as much. You know, as they were making the day before. You know that, that's extraordinary, and um, you know it's it's there's, there's enormous potential for uh, benefiting individuals, but I also think communities if, if we we had a freer movement. Also, I'll, I'll stop there. That's I think those are the main you know reasons for for supporting open borders.
1: Yeah, I agree completely with all of these reasons, uh, and I would be curious in hearing hearing a bit more about the economical effects of this of the implementation of this idea. So so open borders could according to different estimates more than double the gdp of the world and so i would be curious in hearing how exactly this mechanism would work in practice i.e why would the gdp of the world grow and what is your own estimate of the possible growth of the global gdp through this reform
2: yeah yeah i'm not an economist so i'm gonna kind of punt on my own estimates but uh you know every um economic model that i've seen uh suggests you know, even loosening immigration, just even a few percent, you know, would, would have enormous, uh, you know, benefits to to the uh, to, to the world economy, and you know, a lot of this depends on how you model it and what assumptions you make and you know the, the, these sorts of things. But I I think the mechanism is fairly simple. Um, you know, it has to do that. You know, uh, economies are complex systems. And so, you know, I'm a little bit uneasy with these terms, but it's kind of like human capital. And, you know, how much your human capital is kind of inputs into the system depends on where you live because the institutional structure is different. And, you know, so if you think about, you know, somebody, let's just say doing, I don't know, you know, agriculture in a place where they don't have reliable roads, you know, they don't have, you know, networks where they can, uh, you know, effectively, you know, sell their crops and things like that. And then they go to you know to a different place where all of that's that's set up. Then um, because the, the um, you know the, the 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 system is much more productive, you know bringing the same amount of human capital, you know will bring, bring a lot more you know goods, you know into the world. And just think about sort of in a kind of a local perspective. Um, you know, just, just imagine you, you know, you split up a city. So, you know, people are only allowed to work, work in, you know, like a five block radius, you know, from their home. And, you know, what would happen? Well, it would be incredibly inefficient, right? Because, you know, people would not be uh, doing the jobs where, you know, they're most needed, or they would have the most benefit. And it's kind of similar, you know, uh, on, on a global scale. So, you know, a lot of this is just kind of you know, to supply and demand, and uh, you know, if you allow for the mobility of, of labor, you're going to have a more efficient uh, economy. And, you know, and I, I mean, I think sometimes you know, people this is this gets kind of complicated, uh, but they um, you know, there are claims that you can get similar effects by uh, just moving uh, you know goods and services and th- things like that. So, um, and I, I think there's maybe something to that in. Uh, in, in theory, but you know the the, the reality kind of our real world markets. You know, often people are very good at identifying you know where they'll benefit the most, but also you know where employers will benefit the most. Uh,
0: yeah, the few things that you already have mentioned during this conversation uh, that I would like to continue on are the uh, theme of violence and also colonialism that you mentioned and. Uh, I would be interested in hearing, uh, when we think about the, the concept of borders, that uh, should uh, does that concept of borders, now that we generally uh, have it or, or define it, uh, need broadening to accommodate more, let's say, uh, non-Eurocentric modes of thinking in this regard? And especially while we think about uh, the history Let's say, for example, the what has happened in Africa or Middle East Africa when the, the Europeans during the colonialism kind of started drawing the, the political borders, ge- geographical borders. And same, same thing to some extent in the Middle East after uh, the Ottoman Empire fell apart so uh, and the violence that has resulted because of that kind of growing up the borders without understanding of the, the borders of let's say culture and language returning to those concepts so does that demonstrate to some extent the meagreness of our concept of borders
2: yeah i mean there, there, there's a lot in there and you know i think one thing to keep in mind is i mean all borders are in significant ways. I mean, social and political constructions. And you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, you know the, the reality of borders being imposed on people. You know, which is hi, hi, highly problematic for for all sorts of reasons. And you know, mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons, you know, one of the you know issues that's so problematic about colonialism is power, right? You know, it's exercising yeah. power over over a, a group of people. Um, you know, without you know they're having you know the well self self determination um you said something um i think it's a really interesting topic about um if i understood correctly about eurocentrism and i, I actually think this this is a huge problem in the politi- politicization of borders and uh, and the political, the the way that borders are um securitized, but also in the social sciences and areas like philosophy. So one thing that I think it's important to keep in mind is there's actually more south to south migration than there is south to north migration. There are far more refugees who are uh, have fled to nearby countries than refugees who have arrived in Europe or in the United States, for example. But the way that the uh, immigration systems have been imposed, it's its power, right? You know, it's the, the European Union uh, decides, you know, what the immigration policy is, not only for, for Europe, but also they've had a lot of interventions in North Africa and, and other places, uh, you know, so that people are unable to safely travel to the European Union, and this is something um, that's just—it's hugely problematic because, um, you know, European countries, the U.S., Canada, Australia—I mean, they all have laws that allow people to claim asylum. I mean, that, that's that's a basic human right, and it's uh, you know, a large part of the world, at least in theory, has you know, their, their national law you know, this idea that you can show up and say, hey, you know, I'm a refugee, I wanna make a claim for asylum. And then you have a legal process, which, you know, de- determines whether or not you, you have that status. And so a lot of people, for example, were trying to get to Europe, if they, their case was adjudicated, they, they would be refugees and they would be entitled to asylum. And so what has happened, you know, in the political structure is they've made it impossible for people to exercise that legal right. And there's, there's a kind of a deep hypocrisy there because, you know, instead of just saying, hey, you know, we're no longer going to uphold this human right, they've tried to basically move it away from the public public view.
0: Because you mentioned also the legislation, but also the kind of hypocrisy of, 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 of the, some of the current actions. Uh, moving a bit further from legislation, uh, I also would be interested in bringing up the kind of uh, ethical responsibility because when we think about uh, colonization uh, if you go big uh, further in history but also uh, currently or from more recent history we talk we're discussing about let's say armed conflicts some of which are directly or indirectly caused by or maintained by europeans you can take for example the the um, uh, situation if, in Afghanistan where, where the U- U.S. has um, provided uh, weapons but also training for the uh, people who have then turned out to be so-called terrorists but also uh, when we're, let's take for example Finland who has now is, uh, one is, is joining NATO and at the same time uh, we're joining a military alliance with uh, uh, where Turkey is one of the members which is at the same time uh, doing very uh, problematic things in Syria causing, uh, for example, Kurdish people uh, to be in a situation where becoming a refugee is, is almost inevitable. So from this point, point of view, do you think that there's also some some sort of like responsibility that the Westerners have to receive refugees, especially from these countries where we have uh, directly or indirectly caused conditions for people leaving their home country for the sake of their own safety and security?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think asylum is a universal human right, but let me give one example that I I think it connects to what you're talking about. Um, you know, the, the United States, you know, o- occupied Afghanistan for, for a couple decades and they had a lot of Afghani people, you know, working, working for the U.S. military, you know, as, as interpreters, uh, you know, for, for example. Um, and, you know, when the Taliban came back in power, you know, everybody knew, first of all, who these people were because they were, you know, U.S. government employees. And you know we, we we knew that they kind of had to get out of Afghanistan uh, because they uh, were in real danger of being persecuted by by the Taliban. And the U.S. has, for the most part, um, failed to you know, uh, you know grant those you know people asylum in, or you know you're put into a process where. You know, there's, I think there was a straightforward moral obligation that those people and their families would have the opportunity to resettle to the U.S. kind of immediately, uh, you know, after the the transition of power. And you know, there's so there's 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 a lot of cases um, where you know you mentioned the you know the case of NATO, and you know we can talk about um, you know we can talk about Iraq and you know Afghanistan and you know ways in which you know foreign in- intervention. Is the cause of millions of people being forcibly displaced, and I, I can't think in a, in, a, in a moral sense. I mean, how could you not have an obligation if, if you invade a country? Uh, and of course, you know the world doesn't you know work on moral obligations, or at least it's kind of a kind of a you know a spotty record. But I, I think these are the sort of things we, that should be highlighted when we talk about refugees. Uh, there's, I, I think, really a kind of a discourse of, of fear and security around refugees. And that just seems to me to be the wrong way to look at it. Refugees aren't the issue, uh, and you know, people moving is generally not the issue. Rather, it's the kind of the political structures we have in place that makes people move. Um, and you know, I, I'd really like to see you know this this reframing. The other thing I would say about colonialism. This is a you know a complicated topic, but um, you know, you, you, you have to realize that until fairly recently you know, 20th century with a lot of the empires, you know, people from the colonies did have, you know, limited and, you know, political rights and also kind of movement rights. You know, that was one of kind of the myths of the British Empire that was in some ways sustained, that, you know, people were subjects of the empire and, you know, had, you know, the ability to resettle. And what we've seen is we've seen a lot of that roll back and we've seen this imposition. So, you know, instead of having this very problematic idea that you know, the, 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 the former you know, British colonies were uh, you know, part of the community, you know, always unequal and you know, always problematic in all kinds of ways, but still, you know, this kind of you know myth that justified the empire. Well, we see this, we see this roll back for a nationalist kind of uh, you know framing mm-hmm. in which there's a lot of xenophobia you know, toward communities that were, you know, um, in, in many ways, closely culturally connected, um, you know, because of, of the, the result. And that seems to me, a, a, again, uh, morally unacceptable. And uh, and we can trace that history. I think people have traced the history, you know, fairly carefully and just shown how, how problematic it is.
0: Yeah, that is also like there's, uh, we are talking about, the, for example, armed conflicts in the country where people then, because uh, where they the people as a result have uh, they migrate as refugees, but then there's also one one other phenomena came into my mind when we talk, you were talking about the colonialism and the idea of the sort of the home the that the, these colonized countries are part of the empire or the motherland, but then there's like. At least in, in the case of England, as I, as far as I know, there's also been kind of uh, political uh, uh, strives and 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 problems, especially during the last century, when when people of those countries have they they've been brought up to believe that you are part of this bigger empire, and 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 and, and England is the motherland, and there's the royal, and that's the the land of the free, or whatever. And then when people have migrated there, they are ha- faced with the harsh reality that they are not part of that, that culture. They're not welcomed. And, and, and the reality that they have been painted in their original homeland is quite different from the reality they are facing when they arrive to the, let's say, England, in, uh, in this case, for example. So that is also one... Point that I want, wanted to bring out uh, regarding what, what you said earlier, and I, I I had something further to add this, but now now it completely escaped my mind. But yeah, that that yeah maybe that uh, it was the point of bringing back the sort of the again the idea of borders being something bigger than just political and geographical borders. That here again the sort of cultural. Border that if you are, you come from a colonized country to the to the so-called motherland, and then you are faced with these cultural boundaries that uh, make it uh, almost impossible for you to to be part of that uh, culture and and function in that country as a as a kind of free citizen.
2: I mean, I I guess you know I would kind of go back to the caution about. You know, cultural language. I, I, I agree, there's a lot of racism, mm. you know, inflicted against people mm. from, you know, former, former British colonies. Mm. Um, but there's also, a, there, there is a lot of cultural commonality, mm. you know, language, you know, many speak English
0: yes. and,
2: as a first language. And mm. I think it's also important to remember the ways that, uh, you know, cultural boundaries are always fluid. Yeah. You know, there's always exchange and, mm-hmm. um, you know, certainly there was a lot of, you know, kind of British culture imposed on people, but the British also learned mm-hmm. a lot from, you know, the people that they colonized. And I think sometimes we we pick out differences, mm-hmm. you know, for for, for for political reasons and we lose sight of the, the commonalities and, and the connections mm-hmm. and... I I, I re- re- really believe maybe, maybe this is naive, but I, I really believe if you start looking at commonalities between people, you know across, you know cultural boundaries, we we, we find that there's often surprisingly deep, you know ways in which we're we're bound together, um, and I'm you know I'm talking about ways of our identities, you know the ways that we, we, we share, well um, you know I think in a lot a lot of ways, um, you know cultures have always Moved, you know, the story, of, the, the story of, of humanity is a story of migration. And this is, this is true for all of us. And we, we shouldn't lose sight of that because often the so-called differences are things that have been kind of called to attention very recently.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find us at www.globalvisions.fi. Check out also Max's book, which is available to download for free at www.abmissionofabetterworld.net. We are also on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Discord. Everyone is welcome to take part in our activities and discussion, which is an invitation to reflect on how to make the world a better place.